Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we are thankful for your mercies of this day, and uh, they are new every morning, and that is a great blessing, and surely we are in need, uh, need of them, and uh, make us a grateful people, more grateful than we are. Lord, we thank you that we can gather as your people like this, look into your wonderful word. It reveals you and your Son and the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, these are good things. We pray that you help us both understand and, and obey and trust and follow uh, more thoroughly. Father, that you've involved us in building your kingdom and displaying your glory is a tremendous privilege. We ask for your help to be faithful in that, in every walk of life that you call us. Uh, two, that that we would walk faithfully honoring you and deliver us, Lord, from the fear of man and from our own seeking self-glory, which is so easy for us to do. It's disgusting, Lord, but it's in us. So we just thank you for this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're just going through the New Testament um, book by book, and we're in the book of Acts here uh, lately, and we're in the early chapters. Uh, Your comments and questions are always welcome in this class, this format. It's one of the things I like about this format. We get to interact, and uh, that's always a blessing to all of us. And so, Brian, good, he'll get our questions started for us. Giving you a hard time. You're not by yourself, are you? You are. Oh, okay. So you're got the whole big place to yourself. (laughs) Well, we're glad that you have remained. Uh, So we're in the early chapters of the book of Acts, and I kind of have a timeline up here. And where we are tonight is maybe six months uh, in. After the uh, Pentecost, and uh, we're seeing the early days of the church, and tonight if we get far enough, we're going to see the first persecution. These red uh, red squares on our diagram here are occasions of persecution, and we're kind of building this diagram as as we go. And um, we were in Acts chapter 3 here, where this says conversion of 2,000. Uh, that's Acts chapter 3. We're going to continue in that. And Peter and John are arrested at the end of that. Uh, and that's going to be our, our passages for this evening. And we might as well just uh, go ahead and, and uh, resume. If I could put up the right screen. Uh, we can resume right around Acts 3. And uh, verse 12, we stopped uh, right as they entered the temple. Peter healed this man that used to be at the gate. We'll review just a little bit here. Uh, Asking for alms. Now Peter and John went up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. To ask for to ask alms from those who entered the temple. So this this guy was very well known. 
they did this like almost every day of the week. And so many, many people in Jerusalem uh, knew this man, that he would be carried there and he would stay there probably all day or big sections of the day. And, and he was supported by those who, who gave alms. Okay? And who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, ask for alms or ask for financial support, uh, and fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave him his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, he's jumping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. What a sight that must have been. (laughs) Uh, Not only can he uh, walk, he can leap and jump up and down and not fall over. (laughs) And it's just completely amazing. And he accompanies, he goes with Peter and John, and he's praising God as he goes. Okay, and all the people, and all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who had sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Okay, so Peter is going to seize on this opportunity Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, I think that's kind of cool, too. He's he's just holding on to Peter and John. Wouldn't you be? I would if I had been sat there all those years. Uh, I would want to hang out with Peter and John. So he held on to Peter and John. All the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So Peter is going to address the crowd here, beginning in in verse 12, and he's going to assure the crowd that it wasn't by his or John's power that healed this man. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us? (laughs) Can you see it there? It's like, they are staring at Peter and John. They, you know, they don't know what to make of this, and they're staring at Peter and John. Well, he looks so intently at us, as though by our own power or godliness, we made this man walk. So Peter wants to not have any of the credit here for what was done. He's not some super godly guy that is so righteous that he can go around healing people. I think it's interesting that our power or godliness, not because of either of those things, that uh, we had made this man walk. And so he immediately ties it in historically to the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One 
and the just and ask for a murderer to be granted to you and kill the prince of life whom God raised from the dead of which we are all witnesses, of which we are witnesses. So we'll, we'll stop, uh, stop right there. So, so Peter says, Jesus, his servant, has been glorified. That's that resurrected, ascended, sat down at the right hand of God. And there he has healed this man. It's, it's Jesus who has healed this man, the glorified servant. And uh, what do you think Peter got that expression? Yeah, but Peter hooks to the Old Testament quite a bit. He hooks to the Old Testament by quotes, but he also hooks to the Old Testament by expressions. Right. And, and actually, in the book of Isaiah, it's not just 53 is a key place, but there's the, there's the messianic servant in the latter chapters of Isaiah. And there, I have no doubt that's what Peter is doing here, that Jesus is Isaiah's messianic servant. And the passages are, are really beautiful and wonderful. And, uh, uh, and yeah, it includes uh, chapter 53 that he offered himself. So that, that messianic servant of Isaiah, Jesus is that servant. Okay, uh, they delivered him up and so forth, and uh, <clears throat> so um, <clears throat> this expression that Peter uses, I just I can't help just land on it. I know we're kind of doing overview, but and you killed the Prince of Life. <laughs> this kind of the contrast there is kind of interesting, right? <laughs> they killed the Prince of Life. Uh, this is a wonderful expression, isn't it? One of the one of the descriptions of Jesus, he's the Prince of Life or the Author of Life. Uh, translations are different, but does that give you some hope? Right? I mean, we're dying, right? <laughs> everybody's dying. Everybody's decaying. The world is dying. But this man is the Prince of Life which means he, he is, or the author of life, he is the source. He is the source of life. And so God has not left us to simply die because he's given us the prince of life. And you know, that would be worth meditating on. Uh, it's a wonderful title of, of the Lord Jesus. You killed the prince of life, whom, what? God raised from the dead. Okay, well, that's the proof he's a prince of life. God raised him from the dead, of which we are all witnesses. So, <clears throat> verse 16, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And uh, in his name. And you notice what he says up here. Um, where is it? Uh, I read it up above. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He likes to say that a lot. So 
So Peter immediately tries to shift their attention to Jesus, the one who healed this man. And he tells them, they even ask for a murderer rather than having the Prince of Life released. Peter was fearless. This is the same group of people that killed Jesus. And he's going to appear, they're going to appear in the council here before this this is over. Now, at verse 17, Peter gives them some hope. He gives them some hope. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. So Peter is addressing both the common people as well as the rulers. And of course, From the Gospels, we know there was a large crowd crying out, crucify him, crucify him, and and all of this. But he's holding them both responsible. You did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled. So, it's almost like you guys did it by ignorance. You're responsible. We're going to see that. And it's almost like he comforts them a little bit, saying, this was God's plan. (laughs) You did it in your ignorance. Nevertheless, those things which God foretold by the mouth of his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled. So nothing was out of control. And again, Peter's pointing to the Old Testament again, isn't he? Even the suffering of the Messiah, the prophets had spoken of. And God has now fulfilled that. And and so, verses 19 through 20, we have a gracious command and invitation, don't we? Repent, therefore, and be converted Yeah, why? That your sins may be blotted out. So yeah, you did it in ignorance, but your sins need to be blotted out. You're still responsible. He's not excusing them by saying they did it in their ignorance. He's telling them they were actually ignorant of the prophets. They were ignorant of their Old Testaments. And they were so ignorant that they actually rejected the Messiah and they didn't recognize Jesus was the Messiah. And so they are responsible, but it's a gracious command and invitation. Repent and be converted there in uh, verse 19. Let me look at my notes. I don't want to leave something out. Oh, yeah, I want to say this. Uh, though not, your sins could be, you could have forgiveness, your sins would be blotted out, though not through the traditional means of the sacrificial system for which they were used to. So prior to this, how, what would they do? What would they do? Um, what, what, what would they do prior to this 
uh, what would they do if they felt guilty and had consciousness of sin? What would they do? Right. Prior to this point in time, um, if they needed forgiveness of sins, they would they would go to by the law, right? And they would bring the appropriate sacrifice and and offer it to the priest, and the priest would offer the sacrifice, and that's how they would get forgiveness of sins. Okay. Now those that did it in faith really were forgiven. But those that just did it externally were not. But they're all in this Mosaic covenant that has believers and unbelievers in it. So their sins need to be blotted out, and Peter doesn't direct them to the temple, does he? Peter doesn't direct them to the high priest. Peter doesn't direct them to bring any offerings, does he? So, you see, we don't get the radicalness of the shift that's taking place here. The only way their sins now can be blotted out is if they repent and they're converted. See? That's how their sins can be blotted out. And it has to do with their relationship to this man, Jesus. And so that is very significant. Uh, Their sins can be blotted out, but not on the basis of the sacrificial system. You know, in that system, many could practice the externals and remain the people of God in the Mosaic Covenant in this nationalistic sense. Not any longer. What's clear now is the only way one's sins may be blotted out is by an internal change of mind and heart. And that is all in that word, repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Only those who have this internal change will enter Christ's kingdom and be cleansed from their sins. But the converse is also true. All those who have this internal change will enter Christ's kingdom and have their sins blotted out. And that times of refreshing, he says, may come from the presence of the Lord. So he calls them to repent. Now for them, they are to repent and be converted. What does that mean for them? Well, they are to acknowledge their woeful ignorance regarding this man, Jesus. That's where their repentance needs to begin. We were entirely wrong about this man, Jesus. We were wrong, wrong, wrong. That's where their repentance needs to begin. Their thoughts and attitude toward him have been wrong, wrong, wrong. They confidently despise the prince of life. Repentance begins with a major change of attitude toward Jesus, God's servant. (laughs) Jesus was none other than God's servant. And we despised him and rejected him. So their repentance would would be centered around that hardened unbelief and rejection of this man, Jesus. Uh, Verse 
the Greek term translated here, be converted, in the, it's translated be converted in the New King James Version, means to change direction, turn around. It would, for them, it would be something like this. I've been ignoring or despising this man, Jesus. Now I believe in him and follow him as the only means of my sins being blotted out. You realize that? They're aware. They're loaded up with guilt. <laughs> they're loaded up with sin. How, is, how are my sins going to be blotted out? Only by repenting and believing in this man, Jesus, who's been crucified and risen. Okay. So, I think that's their, that's what their repentance that's what their repentance would be like a total change of attitude and mind, centered around who Jesus is and the fact that they are lost and their sins need to be blotted out, blotted out. Of whose sight? God's sight, right? <laughs> you know, what does that mean? Our sins are blotted out. Well, you can't see them anymore. God doesn't see them anymore. That's what it means to have you. Isn't that wonderful? Have your sins blotted out? <laughs> That's the new covenant, right? And I will remember their sins no more. And the blood of bulls and goats could never blot out our sins out of God's sight. But Christ crucified and risen, it's a great expression that your sins might be what? Blotted out. Okay? And repentance acknowledges that that's exactly what we need. So, so Peter definitely gives them very clear hope. And there's no Puritanic, I love the Puritans, but they have some weaknesses. There's no, not a lot of preparationism here. <laughs> uh, they can repent right now on the spot, and their sins can be blotted out right now on the spot. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, where are we here? <clears throat> yeah, verse 20 is a bit awkward in in our translations. I'm not I'm not saying there's anything wrong. It's difficult to translate, and I'm going with the New American Standard here on on verse 20. No, I'm going with the ESV actually. Sorry, uh, <laughs> I, I I can tell there's some New American Standard people in here, right? And there's ESV. Are you a New American Standard? Oh, okay. You went from King James to ESV. Yeah. Yeah, I started out on uh, the New American Standard. Well, actually, I started out on the Living Bible, actually, when I was first converted. And then I went over to the New NASB, the New American Standard. That's a really good translation. I still really like, like the NASB. So, actually, uh, so I'm sorry, you ESV lovers. I'm going with the ESV translation on verse 20, which I have there in the notes. Uh, And that he, God, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Okay, let me put that text up here. I think I have it right here. 
If I could get to the right verse, what verse is it? It's 20 I'm talking about. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Here's the ESV. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that the time, times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Okay, and so this is talking about the promise. The Messiah was promised for the Jewish people. Okay, and, and so the Christ that's appointed for you for us too, but the context here is Jews. The crisis appointed for Israel is Jesus. That's what he's saying here. This is another time he's saying that Jesus is the promised Messiah that was promised and appointed for Israel. That promised and appointed Christ is Jesus. That, that's, that's what he's saying. Okay. So... <clears throat> Now, in verse 21, uh, let's just go back. Whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. Let's spend just a few minutes there. What do you think he's talking about there? Whom heaven must receive? No, I'm sorry. I, what, 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 what does he mean there? Whom, uh, whom heaven must receive until... What, what's he talking about here? Where is Jesus right now? He's at the right hand of the Father. He's talking about the ascension and that Jesus is not physically present on the earth at this point, okay? Whom heaven must receive, okay, until, right, the times of the restoration of all things. Now, what is he talking about there? What's that? The The second coming, absolutely. Peter's talking about this inner advental period. His death resurrection and ascension he's been received up into heaven and he's sitting at the right hand of God okay and he's not coming back until the restoration of all things that is the consummation of the kingdom and the restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began And when you read the prophets, like we're talking about Isaiah especially, and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, the restoration promises are in there. And those restoration promises promise what? A new heavens and earth, a righteous people of God, the elimination of all idolatry and all sin, and a complete restoration of the heavens and the earth. Those promises are not yet all fulfilled, not at all. And they're going to be fulfilled when he returns. And so Peter's explaining, well, why isn't he right here now? You know, no, he's at the right hand of God, which Peter appealed to the Old Testament too about that, that he sat down at the right hand of God. But he is going to return and... um, 
until oh, when it's the times of re- restoration. Now, I like this, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. When we read our Old Testaments correctly, by God's help, ever since the fall, there has been hope of a restoration. And it runs all the way through the Old Testament. Ever since the fall, there's been hope of a restoration. And that, of course, began in what verse? Genesis 3, Genesis 3 verse 15. You know, let's, let's just bring that out a little bit. See, see, he said, since the world began. You see that? <laughs> Peter, Peter brings us way back. There's been this promise of this restoration. And so let's, and, and uh, yeah, Genesis 3 and uh, verse 15. <clears throat> and uh, this is after the fall, and the Lord is speaking to Adam, Eve, and the serpent. And I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, what? He shall bruise your he shall bruise your head, that is uh, the seed of the woman shall bruise or crush the head of the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay? So what would you rather receive, a blow to the head or a blow to the heel? (laughs) Who's going to come out in the better of the two here? (laughs) Well, obviously, uh, the serpent is going to receive a blow or bruise to the head. But in the process, the seed of the woman, his heel is going to be bruised. So what is that saying? is that evil entered the world through the serpent. But the serpent is going to be destroyed. So there's your first your first promise that the evil that's entered the world through the serpent and then through Adam and Eve's disobedience is going to be undone. It's going to be undone. And let me show you one of these other early promises and... Um, what chapter is it? Is it chapter 8 when Noah was born? No. Six. Is it 6? When he's born. The, the birth of Noah? Uh, where is it? Are you you're talking about in the genealogy when he's born? Noah makes a, a, a statement, and it, 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 it's a promise. Let, let me just search for Noah. This is not accordance. Okay. It's 529. I got it here. Lamech lived 182 years and had a son. Lamech says it, not Noah. What's that? Sorry, Lamech thinks it's Okay. And had a son and called his name Noah, saying... This one will comfort us concerning the work and the toil of our hands. 
because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. Isn't that interesting? Lamech has some prophetic vision that the line of salvation of the earth and undoing the curse is coming through his son Noah. Isn't that? And Noah's name, you know what it means? Rest. And they're laboring under the toil of the curse, right? The curse is still remembered because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. So the prophets have spoken this from before from the world began, that there's going to be a restoration of all things. And this is the beginning of the topology of rest, okay, which finds its expression in the Sabbath. Okay, the Sabbath is about rest. <laughs> That's the center concept of the Sabbath. The word Sabbath even means rest, okay? And God gives his people rest. That's an Old Testament theme. And so on the rest theme, what did Jesus say that they should have stoned him when he said it if they didn't believe about this rest theme? Beginning here in Noah. What did he say? It's at the bottom of Matthew 11. It's part of this great invitation. Come unto me. And what? And I will give you rest. Who gives God's people rest in the Old Testament? Yahweh. That's the promise. Yahweh promises his people rest. And when Jesus says, come to me, and I will give you rest, that's a messianic claim. He's claiming to be the Messiah when he does that. And I'm surprised they didn't pick up stones because it's very clear in your Old Testament that the promise is Yahweh will give his people rest. He delivers them out of slavery from Egypt, right? And he gives them rest when they settle in the land. Okay? But that's not the final rest. The restoration is all, of all things is the final rest. So, anyways, this passage about Noah here is really great when you when you grab hold of what's, what's going on, is the curse, the restoration of all things is going to roll back all of the effects of the curse. Okay? That's, that's what restoration, you read the restoration promises in the Old Testament, you, you know, you'll see that. And Christ is the one who is making this, making this happen. And Lamech has prophetic insight here regarding this son. And so, you used know, the... Lamech died five years before the flood, which means he watched Noah build the ark. Oh, that's cool. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. All right. So how do we get off over here is about the restoration of, restoration of all things. I showed you some of the very early, uh, early promises there. <clears throat> oh, here we are. Okay. Peter keeps going here in this message. Um, 
So the Lord is in heaven until the time of restoration. And he tells them more about Jesus. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. So Peter again, going to the Old Testament to explain what's happening and who Jesus is. And now he, he's talking about Moses. And uh, if you read in Deuteronomy and in Exodus, you'll see that the Lord did make the promise to the people of Israel that he would raise up a prophet like Moses for your brethren. Now Peter's going to really make an application here Quoting from Yahweh, him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. So Peter is applying that. That prophet is Jesus. (laughs) That promised prophet is like Moses, is Jesus. And if you reject, what happened if you rejected the word word of Moses? You were kicked out of the covenant and you perished. That's right. But you were no longer my people. Right. And, and, you, would, and you would perish. But, and so now Jesus is that prophet. So him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. There's your covenant people right there. Okay? Among the people. That's covenant language. See? And they're going to be utterly destroyed, what? From among the people. And now, who is the prophet? Jesus. Jesus is now that prophetic role. So the word and the knowledge that comes through Jesus is the revelation from God to man. That's what a prophet does. A prophet takes the mind of God, communicates it to man. And uh, Jesus is now that prophet like unto Moses, greater than Moses. So this is a serious warning to them. They better repent <laughs> and believe in Jesus or they're going to be utterly destroyed. And that, of course, applies to anybody who hears the gospel uh, as we go forward. Peter goes on, Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. There's the blessing. Now, what he means here, to you first, to you Jewish people first, 
God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you. The, the raising up here does not mean the resurrection. It means providing the Messiah. God sent the Messiah first to the people of Israel. And that, that raised up language is, is Old Testament language. I will raise up a prophet like Moses. Okay. So what Peter is telling them is, you Jews, you Israelites, part of this covenant uh, up to this point, part of the Abrahamic Mosaic covenant, God raised up his servant Jesus and sent him to bless you. He raised up the Messiah, sent him to bless you, uh, not by defeating the Romans. <laughs> he sent him to bless you, what? In turning away every one of you from your iniquities. No. That's the blessing. Now notice, there's a great, there's a great, there is a great hope in here. Who is the one that's causing us to turn away from our iniquities? Jesus. He's going to bless us by doing what? By turning us away from our iniquities. You see that? He sent the Messiah to bless you in what? Turning away every one of you from your iniquities. That's salvation. And I always hammer on this that salvation is more than just forgiveness. This is another text. What does Jesus do for the people he saves? He turns them away from their iniquities. And isn't that not what we need? Yeah. That's the blessing. That's the blessing. Now, in this case, their unbelief is one of the... uh, their unbelief and rejection and all of that is one of their biggest of iniquities, but that term is broad. That term can be broader than that. It's just, what a blessing. You know, there's hope. Got it? There's hope for you because this Messiah turns people away from their iniquities, from their sin. So don't despair. Engage the warfare because Christ is the Deliverer, the Savior. You see that? It's a wonderful expression of blessing. Turning every one of us away, you know, away from our iniquities. That's a, that's a wonderful thing. So where are we? We're at the, yeah, we're at the end of chapter 3. So the sermon gets interrupted. <laughs> chapter 4. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So they are upset. Peter and John, 
uh, speaking to the crowd. They're greatly annoyed because they're teaching. What are they upset about? They're greatly disturbed because they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, period. They didn't believe in Jesus or that there was a bodily resurrection. Uh, And it specifically says it's the Sadducees who are the ones that had the most authority in, in as the political leaders. And they're greatly disturbed because they taught in Jesus. And they lay, okay, and they put him in, locked him up for that night. But the damage was already done. (laughs) The damage was already done there uh, in verse 4, right? However, many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Okay? So that's where we get the 2,000. We knew it was 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. We're kind of assuming that's how Luke is counting here. So the damage was done. Those who heard the word believed. Okay, That is the process. That's how anybody gets converted, by the way. How does conversion start? How does it begin? It begins by hearing the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. That's how faith always comes. How did faith begin with Abraham? God spoke to him. Abraham heard the word of God and responded to it and believed him. So God always initiates the conversion transaction by having his word preached to people or shared with people or they read it. The conversion transaction is always initiated by God exposing someone's heart and mind to the Word of God. And this is just another example. There's dozens, I can multiply references that, that explain this. So if we want people to be converted, what we need to do is expose them to the Word of God. That's what we need to do. And we do that with our children, we do that with our friends, we do it when we preach from the pulpit. We expose the human mind to the Word of God. And that's what happened here. And under the blessing of the Holy Spirit, <laughs> we're back to those two things, right? Word and Spirit. Word, word and Spirit. Uh, that was a great phrase of the Reformation, one of them. So, however, many of those who heard the Word believed. And the number came to about 5,000. Let's talk about that number a little bit. Um, 5,000 The number of the number of men came. Okay, we're, we're talking about this word here. Th- this is not anthropos. This is another a Greek term, and it almost always means male or husband. Not one hundred point oh oh percent of the time, but the majority of the times, and all through the Book of Acts and most of the New Testament, it almost always means males or husbands. So, if that is the correct way of reading this, then it's the number of men came to about 5,000. There obviously were women who were believing as well. So, the size of the church there in Jerusalem is beyond 
the number of 5,000. And uh, <clears throat> one of the reasons, there's two reasons we know for sure women are, are included or beyond that number is because, um, <clears throat> let me get to the right place in my notes. First off, the Joel prophecy. Remember the Joel prophecy? The Spirit will be poured out on your sons and your daughters. <laughs> okay? And everything we're experiencing here in Pentecost and some months later, this is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the prophecy says it's going to be poured out on your sons and your daughters and your men servants and your maid servants. Right. So if we're reading verse 4 correctly, that is, we're talking to men or husbands, there's many other women that have been converted also on top of this number of 5,000. And Luke, when Luke gets to Acts chapter 5, verse 14, he actually explicitly says that. Uh, Sorry about that. I thought I hit that right. Oh, no. 5 verse 14, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women in 5.14. So we're talking about this just to get the idea of how many Jewish men and women were turning to Christ at this, turning to Jesus as the Christ at this point and believing. You know, the number could easily be 10,000. Uh, <clears throat> that's happening there in uh, in Jerusalem. So it's very, uh, very large, amazing. Um, verses 5 through 7, back to chapter 4. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers... Well, this is a list of who's who in Jerusalem. <laughs> the next day, their, their rulers, elders, and scribes as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, another high priest, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together in Jerusalem. And when they had set them, that is Peter and John, in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Okay, this is the next day. And um, the high priestly family was the, the place of the political power, and the political ruling family was the high priest and his sons and so forth, or son-in-laws and all of that. And they had the political power in Israel uh, at that time. And the Sanhedrin, which was the Council of Seventy, most of them were Sadducees and, and priests. Um, so, Brian? So those mentioned, Annas, Caiaphas, and John yeah. Alexander, were probably Sadducees? Yes. Yes. Yeah, and... Uh, I wish I can't keep it all straight. One of these is a son-in-law, um, 
Caiaphas, I believe, is Annas' son-in-law. And one of the reasons they hated the Romans <laughs> is the Romans appointed the high priest. You know, if you're a Jew, what, what in the world does, does this Roman Gentile emperor have, you know, have to do with appointing our high priest? But that's what they did because the Romans viewed the high priest as like the political head of the vassal kingdom. And they wanted to control, Caesar wanted to control in all those states that they subjugate, that they submitted Caesar wanted to control those, and they did that by appointing the chief rulers in those places. And that was happening to Israel. And where does all that go? Well, they they appointed his son-in-law. They appointed his son... I think it's Annas' son-in-law. They appointed his son-in-law. But Annas is always there. And many of the Jews didn't consider Caiaphas the real high priest. They considered Annas that. And it shows up in the night of Jesus' arrest because they first bring Jesus to Annas. Okay? So we, we've been through that when we went, went through the Gospels. So anyways, they're, they're the ones in authority. And they, and they set Peter, Peter and um, John in the midst of them. One thing that's interesting, when they said they set them in the midst of them, you can get the scene. We have extra biblical data that shows that they, they sat, there were 70 on that council, they, they sat in a, a horseshoe-shaped, they all sat around a horseshoe-shaped table built. And, and you, they set them right, they set them in the middle, in the midst of them. So there's this horseshoe-shaped area like that, and Peter and John are standing there in the middle. And you know who else is with them? The man that they healed. So somehow... The apostles spent the night in prison. But that morning, when they got him out of the prison and brought him into the council, they connected back up with the guy they had healed. And the three of them are standing there. And so it's 8 o'clock, and uh, we'll stop there. <laughs> and, and Peter is going to give a blazing, uh, <laughs> a blazing message before the council uh, about this man that was healed. And so... Uh, what is happening, of course, not of course, is um, John and Peter have, having an example now, having an opportunity through persecution to preach the gospel to even to the leaders and the rulers. Now, it's persecution that is getting them that opportunity, but that often is the case. Often persecution opens a door of opportunity for proclaiming Christ even in our individual lives. Um, and it's risky, but Christ risked, risked it all for us, didn't he? Yeah. Any comments or questions? I won't, I won't plow through any more verses. Right, right behind you there, Brian, with Richard. I think the uh, Jewish priests... Uh, both Sadducee and Pharisee, felt very self-righteous in the face of um, the cultural pressure since uh, the Maccabees, you know, to maintain Jewish identity, to maintain themselves. Yeah. And when Jesus came along, I I wouldn't know how long it would be 
until it was diffused that he w- he was all you needed for the forgiveness of sins, mm. such that their services were no longer required. Yeah, you know, and so you have all these human emotions going into their attitude. You know, mm. which which you call in a modern sense identity politics. They're yeah. holding, and they're the status quo. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they were very self righteous, and uh, it really shows. Um, the Sadducees were more political wing than the Pharisees. Um, the Pharisees might have wanted to throw off Roman rule more than the Sadducees. The Sadducees had a pretty good deal going. And, and, and they did not want insurrection against Rome. The Sadducees did not want that at all. Um, and uh, there's that place when Caiaphas prophesies that um, if, we, if we let the, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the council had an emergency meeting <laughs> and to discuss what are we going to do if this continues, they will all believe in him and the Romans will come and destroy us and remove our place. There's a good exegetical argument when they said remove our place, they meant their positions of power is what they meant, which is what you're saying, uh, Richard. And that's probably what they meant. Because if, if Israel goes with an insurrection against Rome, that current level leadership, <laughs> they're going to be wiped out. And all their, all their privilege and all their positions of power are going to be wiped out. So, and that's what... And eventually it happened. And eventually it did happen in 70 AD. Yeah. I would like to also go one step farther to say that if the leaders had not rejected Christ so fully... Um, God would have established their kingdom, and the Roman rule would would have been mitigated. It it wouldn't have mattered. Yeah, I, I think to them. Yeah. In other words, the Jewish rulers rejecting the Christ helped precipitate their own downfall. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. And Jesus was no insurrectionist. If they had just followed him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anybody else with a comment or a question? All right. Okay. How about we send the microphone uh, back to Dan back there? <laughs> he can lead us in prayer this evening. Can I ask a uh, quick question as long oh, as I have the microphone? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, going back to um, real quick. Uh, chapter 3, verse 22, when he quoted Moses as saying, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like yes. me from your brethren, yeah. to whom you shall give, everything, give heed to everything he says. Would that be a direct correlation to the transfiguration, would you say? Well, um, transfiguration, Moses and Moses Elijah. Moses there, and he said, Listen to him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Yeah, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Yes, that's one of my favorite Verses, I should have brought it up. Okay. Obviously, um, at the transfiguration, uh, the Lord didn't say, hear Moses, it's now, hear my son. 
Yeah, that's really good, Dan. That's like there's a transition taking place, isn't there? Moses is being put out of business because the greater Moses has come. And now we're not to hear Moses, we're to hear the son. Oh, that's, that's excellent. Yeah. And, and that, uh, that is completely true of us today. And I think, though Gentile unbelievers, like our nation, we're not in covenant relationship with God like Israel was. But what was the great benefit of being an Israelite, according to Paul in Romans 3? They possess the oracles of God. What, what benefit then is being Jewish? Because Paul had so knocked down the benefits, supposedly, of the self-righteous Jews in Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 3, verse 1, Paul hears the objector saying, well, then it's no benefit whatsoever being a Jew. And why don't I, why don't I butcher, butcher it anymore? <laughs> I'm going to, follow me, I'll get back. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? He has just told the Jews, you're not going to be saved by being Jewish, and you're not going to be saved by being circumcised. And so now the objector is saying, well, Paul, you're just saying there was no benefit being a Jew. And so Paul says, no, much in every way, right? Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Right? Now, Our nation, we're not in covenant relationship with God, but we have had the oracles of God, haven't we? (laughs) Much of our founding was centered around the oracles of God, our legal system, our judicial system, all of these things. So, (laughs) whoever does not heed the word of that prophet, in other words, our responsibility is greatly heightened because we have had the oracles of God. And so I believe that principle still operates. And that principle operates with our children. Right? Because they have had the blessing of the oracles of God. So hearing the gospel can be dangerous. You know what I mean? It makes us accountable. So... Okay. All right. I'll I'll shut up. <laughs> I'll stop. <laughs> uh, Dan, it's your fault. You got you got I us know, back I on that. Peter's <laughs> in prayer, brother. Pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your word, Lord. We, we thank you that you've chosen to reveal us everything that we need to know through your word. What a gift that is that you didn't leave us in the dark, Lord. May your word uh, continue to help us to grow, Lord. May this not just be wisdom and understanding, but may it change who we are, change how we act, change how we live. Mm-hmm. Lord, may, it, may you use your word to uh, conform us into the image of your son. And thank you that we are even here. Our, our desire to be here is only by your grace that we, that we want to be here and continue to learn. Mm-hmm. Rather than following the course of this world, Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for everybody here. Lord, I pray that you would help us to uh, have a, a safe and healthy week leading up to Sunday. Lord, please get us home safely and prepare our hearts even now for uh, Sunday. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen.